John chapter 18, so hopefully you're all there in your Bibles and you've got a Bible with you as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John as we are on Sundays. And so we're, we're as you know, and I've probably been saying it every Sunday, but we're, we're moving into these very crucial moments in Jesus's life and ministry because we're, we're fastly approaching the cross. We're just a few hours away in Jesus's life and ministry from him being taken to the cross. And so in those previous chapters that we've been looking at, right from chapter 13 on up to the end of chapter 17, we've been seeing Jesus pouring into the life of his disciples. He's wanting to instruct them and encourage them. Let them uh, know of what is to come, but also what Jesus is providing for them. And he's looking to comfort them because as he goes to the, to the Father, well, the Holy Spirit's now gonna be poured out for them and, and in them and be that continuous helper and help to them. Chapter 17, we saw this great prayer of Jesus as he's praying for his disciples, as he's praying for you and me uh, of the things that are to come. And so Jesus is giving great comfort and encouragement, pouring out into the lives of his disciples as he is nearing the cross, which is amazing that Jesus is concerned with and caring for others in such a, a heartfelt way. He's not dismissing these things, saying, guys, this is my time right now, okay? This is my hour. This is the uh, uh, stuff that you need to be praying. No, he's praying for his disciples. And now in chapter 18, we see things kind of coming to a head now where we look at the arrest of Jesus, where things are coming now to this hour, to this moment that is not taking Jesus by surprise. And I want you to catch that as we go through half of this chapter here this morning, that, that Jesus is in full control, okay? Here's what we're gonna be looking at here. We're gonna see how Judas betrays Jesus, verses one to 11. We're gonna see how the high priest is questioning Jesus. That'll be in a couple parts here, verses 18, uh, sorry, verses 12 to 14, and then in verse 19 to 24. And then we'll look at Peter denying Jesus there in verse uh, 15 to 18, and then also verse 25 to 27. So Judas betraying Jesus, the high priest questioning Jesus, Peter denying Jesus. Look at verse one with me. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So again, Jesus has been in the upper room, the last supper, it's Passover season, He's in the, last, in the upper room. He's been ministering to his disciples. They've been making their way now to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus has been, like I said, just pouring out his heart and instructing and sharing with his disciples. And so we, we are seeing this progression now where Jesus had spoken all these words to his disciples, chapter 13 to 17, and now they make their way to this garden. And to get to the garden now from Jerusalem, they cross down over the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron is this kind of creek bed that, that flows on the bottom there between Jerusalem and in, in the valley there, Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, okay? In the Kidron Valley. So the Brook Kidron is this little, and it's a dry creek river bed. It's, it's just kind of not a lot of action happening, different seasons that will change, of course, depending on the, on the weather and whatnot. But it's a significant brook, I believe. And, and there's some things that I think we can learn from it that are relating to what Jesus is facing here right now. Because as he makes his way down from Jerusalem, crosses the brook Kidron to go up to the Mount of Olives to the garden here, I'm sure Jesus would have been reminded now uh, of some of the things that have happened even within history that are relating to what he's going through. You see, the word Kidron means turbid. And yeah, I had to look that up myself as you are probably going, what is, well, great, it means turbid. I have no idea what turbid means. It means murky or not clear, all right? Murky or, or not clear. You see, I think there's times where we can be facing things that to us seem very murky, unclear, where we're like, what is going on? Could you imagine Jesus and his disciples making their way to the garden where Jesus knows he's going to be arrested, but the disciples don't know. I'm sure the disciples would have been facing in just a few short minutes here. What is happening? What is going on? This doesn't, this doesn't fit with our agenda, with our plan. In fact, as Jesus crosses over this brook, I'm sure he was reminded of what King David himself had to endure and face 
in such a similar occasion. You see, it says in 2 Samuel 15, 23, and all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king also himself crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. You see, this brook here, this Kidron brook, spoke of this rebellion and rejection that David had once had to face when, when his own son Absalom kind of raised up this insurrection against the throne and came against David. And David and many were on the run now from Absalom. I'm sure David himself was crossing on his brook wondering, Lord, what are you doing? Haven't I been the one that you've called to be the king here? Haven't you put me in this place? And now look at what's going on. What's happening? This seems so unclear to me. I'm sure we go through those times ourselves. And Jesus himself walking over this brook now being reminded of this rejection and rebellion from the world against him when he came as the son of God to provide life. And yet the world, for the most part, rejected him, tuned him out. Didn't want to receive this light and love that he had, but they loved their darkness instead. So Jesus himself reminded of this rebellion and rejection. But this brook Kidron also speaks, I believe, of, of sacrifice. Because like I said, this brook was oftentimes very dry, but here on Passover season, it would have looked very differently because this brook provided kind of a natural runoff for the sacrifices that were taking place at the temple. And on this Passover season, that here's Jesus now in Jerusalem ready to give his life there on the cross as the Passover lamb, this brook Kidron would have been running red with the blood of the sacrifices being given. In fact, Josephus the historian tells us that on this Passover, there were estimated to be about 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed for this Passover season. And so as Jesus and his disciples crossed over this brook, I'm sure they're crossing over just this flow of blood running through of all the sacrifices. A reminder that Jesus was this in a few short hours coming to lay his life down as the ultimate sacrifice, as the Passover lamb that would not just cover over the sins of the people, but would cleanse the world of their sin through faith in him. So Jesus is being reminded of rebellion and rejection, things looking so unclear, murky at times, and yet through the blood of Jesus, he makes all things whole and new. He brings cleansing. He makes things clear to us again through the work that he's done for us. So Jesus comes and he makes his way now over the brook Kidron, a great reminder of some significant things. And he makes his way to the garden, which isn't named here, but we know through the gospels that he's there in the garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane, where, again, John doesn't go into a lot of details as the other gospels do, because other gospels let us know that he comes in and he prays this prayer now before the Lord in, in great kind of distress and, and, and agony almost here, because it's in this garden that Jesus understands that he's submitting himself fully and wholly. And he prays to the Lord, Lord, if there be any other way that you can accomplish salvation for the world, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Nevertheless, Lord, let it be your will, not mine, that's done here. And it's in this garden that he prayed that three times. This is a special place where it does as good to, I think, contrast what we see happening between the first garden and this special garden where Jesus comes into and prays. Because it's in the Garden of Eden where we see the, that Adam rebelled from God's will. And yet it's in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see Jesus submitting to God's will. It's in Eden where we see Adam who hides from God. But it's in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see Jesus transparent before God, laying it all out before the Lord. It's in Eden that through the first Adam's actions, man was born into sin. But it's in Gethsemane where through the last Adam's action, as Paul would refer to Christ in 1 Corinthians as the last Adam, Man was now freed from the penalty of sin. One man brought sin in the world. One man, the perfect man, brought redemption for all. Forgiveness and, and cleansing. This garden is so important, so significant. And this garden, Gethsemane, literally means olive press. 
means all oppressed. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just surrounded by olive groves. You go there today. Hey, we're going in March. We're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to take some time to pray. And I hope you guys can come with us. If anybody's interested in a tour of Israel, which is a tour of a lifetime, and I'm shamelessly promoting that right now, and I'm sorry, but if anybody's ever thought about Israel, now's your time. We're going in March, and you don't want to miss it. It's great. But we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll see the olive groves around. But it's here. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane where, again, Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 14, verse 33, that Jesus came troubled and, and deeply distressed in his spirit. I mean, this is a point where Jesus was really just being pressed in his spirit. Why? Was it the fear of the cross? Was it the fear of man and what they might do? Now, I don't believe there's any of that. I believe it is here that Jesus really comprehended truly that this would be the first time and only time that he would be actually separated from the father when he cried out on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me it was because god was placing the sin of the world upon jesus and it was the first time that jesus experienced any kind of separation from the father i believe it was here out of great agony that jesus was was hoping is there any other way to accomplish this and me having to lay my life down and, and be cut off from you because you'd bear the sin of the world and God would have to judge that. Jesus would experience that separation from the Father, yet Jesus said, nevertheless not, my will but yours be done. It's interesting when, when all those are being pressed, they will do that process three separate times so as to extract every last little bit out of that olive that they can get. Three times they'd be pressed. It's here in the garden that Jesus prayed three times. Again, just pouring out everything that he had of self to say, Jesus, I'm emptying myself of everything that might hold me back from your will being accomplished so that your will might be done fully and completely in me and through me. You see, the picture of this garden is a picture of having our wills confronted by God's will. Are we gonna be those that'll keep running and attempting to do things our way? Or are we gonna realize that God has a better way for me? And, and he has a better way for you. And, and it begins with, with us yielding ourselves where we're saying, I'm not gonna keep running my way. I'm not gonna keep trying to push for my way, my wants, my desires. I'm gonna surrender to the Lord and say, God, your way is ultimately better for me. Regardless of how murky or unclear that will might look at times, Lord, I know that you have nothing but my best interest at heart. And your desire is to bless. So Lord, I want to surrender. I want to lay myself down so that your will can be carried out in my life. That's what this garden is representing here for us. Or oh, there might be times where we're pressed, but we're pressed so that we can empty ourselves of self and say, Lord, all the more, you have all of me. All of, hey, I'm going to write that down. I just, that just, I honestly, that was not planned. That was one of those things where it's just, that's the spirit right there. That's so true. I, okay, let me just write this down in there. All of, okay. You have all of me. Man, sometimes I just, you know, I amaze myself. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. That's crazy. Okay. But that's the idea here, everybody, is to empty ourselves completely so that God's will can be carried out. Gethsemane represents that. Jesus shows us that. He does that for us. He does that. And, and so moving on here now, it says in, in verse two, and, and Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So catch this here. Judas has long been gone, right? He left in, in chapter 13. He's been gone, Jesus, and, and he's been conspiring now. But Judas knew where he would find Jesus. I believe this is a place that Jesus went to often to just have that retreat, that getaway with the Lord, to spend time with the Father. And Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus at an hour like this. It, it cannot be said of us, do people know where to find us when, when things heat up, when we're facing a crisis or a trial? Do people know where they'd find us? Do they find us at the place of prayer before the Lord? I love what Sandy Adams says. He says, is God your first retreat or your last resort? I think it's true sometimes 
God can be kind of an afterthought at times where it's like, oh man, okay, well, I've tried this, I've tried that. Well, I guess we better just pray. <laughs> it's like, well, wait, I mean, shouldn't that have been your first response? To say, Lord, man, this is coming up and this is, this is heavy on me. Lord, I need to bring it to you. I don't wanna try figuring it out and working it out. I, I need us to give it to you, Lord. I need you to be my first retreat, not a last resort. And so Judas knows exactly where Jesus is. I think it's a familiar place to his disciples because we know that Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus loved to get alone with the Father. And no doubt Jesus found a place here in the garden that provided just that. Goes on to say in verse three, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Let me just stop right there. So we see that Judas is leading out this incredible band of people, this, this army in a sense. Now, a detachment was a, a cohort of about 600 men. All right, so this is a significant group that Judas is bringing. No doubt these were Roman soldiers probably stationed there at the Antonia Fortress near the temple. The officers who came were members of the temple um, police that were under the command of the temple uh, or under the command of the Jewish council like the Sanhedrin. And so there's a, a significant group of people that are coming here and they're, they're coming prepared for a fight, right? They're like, Man, this is it. They're, they're coming with, with torches, lanterns, just like in the movie Shrek, right? They're all coming after this guy. And, and they're coming to get Jesus. They're thinking Jesus is probably gonna be on the run. He's gonna be hiding somewhere. We need lanterns, we need torches. And they got weapons. They're expecting a fight. They're ready to just take Jesus by, by force here if that's what it's gonna take. That's what they're expecting here, basically. But I love what we read in verse four there. Let me read it again. But Jesus, therefore knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Let me just pause right there. This is so good. I, I, I love what we're looking at here. Because this army comes out to take down one man, 600 plus of them, Right? But again, Jesus is the one that's in complete control. Don't miss this here. Because we might feel at times like, oh my goodness, look at the numbers against me. Look at the odds that I'm up against here. And yet when we bring Jesus into the picture, he's just in full control. He's the one with the ultimate authority. These all come thinking they've got the authority. They've got the power. They've got the control. But Jesus is the one. And I love, it says, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him. See, Jesus knew exactly what was happening, what was coming before it even happens. He could have stopped this at any moment. He could have avoided it. He could have gone to a different garden. He could have done whatever he needed to, but it was for this moment that he came into the world. He, knowing all things that would come upon him. And notice, Jesus is the one that comes to them. He approaches them. And he says, whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And Jesus comes and, and, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Now, depending on your translation of your Bible, um, the word he in my Bible is, is an italicized, which means it's not in the original Greek. So what Jesus says here, whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Amen. I am. It's it's the statement that John has been covering through his whole gospel to reveal that Jesus is truly the son of God, that he is fully God. Seven I am statements recorded through the gospel of John. I am the, you know, the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I'm the, the resurrection and the life. I'm the, the door. I'm the good. All these things John has been recording to sum up that Jesus is God. So when Jesus says, I am, notice here now what happens. I mean, this packs a punch. This is a statement of full authority because now everybody just falls back. This is the word ego eimi. I am, where, where you go, well, what significance is that? This is what God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush when Moses says, God, who shall I tell everybody has sent me? What authority am I going in? God says, tell them I am. 
that I am. I am has sent you. This is the term that God uses for himself. I am the, the all-existing one, the eternal one, Jehovah, Yahweh. And so when Jesus says, I am, and that packed a punch, that was a, a, a description that was packed with authority and power. So much so that it caused all of those coming against Jesus to fall down on the ground. They thought they were coming as the authority, but they just met their maker. And when they stand before their maker, they realize they don't have a leg to stand on. Very literally, right? They're on the ground. And Jesus so patiently, I mean, just love it. I, I just, isn't Jesus just so awesome? Because here they are on the ground. This is his moment to say, okay, disciples, let's move on now. These guys can't do anything. We just defeated them. Jesus could have escaped. He could have gone. But he's the one in control. He comes up to them. Hey, guys, uh, everybody doing all right there? Uh, listen, uh, let me ask again. Who are you looking for? He doesn't try to get away. He goes up to them. He's like, you guys done taking a nap now? Can we get on with this? Can we just, can we just take care of this here? Who are you looking for? Uh, 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 um. And they're all coming up. And he's like, I told you, that's me. I'm the one you're looking for. I am. Look at verse seven. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. So Jesus now, he comes to them again, kind of revives them, gets them going. He says, listen, you're looking for me. Take me, but let these other 11 just go their way. They don't need to be dragged into this right now. See, Jesus, in his greatest hour again, full of compassion and love, is looking to protect his disciples. And he says that the word might be fulfilled, which Jesus has spoken repeatedly through the gospel of John. We've seen in John 6, 39. We've seen in John 10, 28. John 17, 12. John 10, 28 says, I, I've given them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus is looking to preserve and protect his disciples. He's giving them a way out. Let these go their way. He's caring, caring for his loved ones to the end, just as Jesus said he would. I've loved them to the end, to the full. And, and he does the same for us. Understand that. That Jesus still has that ministry of looking to protect us, preserve us, keep us safe. And, and he gives us a way out. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to men. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Do you understand that, that there's nothing that comes against us that God hasn't already allowed for us to have a way out and escape because he loves you, he cares for you. He's not putting something on you where he's going, oh, let's see how well they do. Let me see what their breaking point is. I'm gonna really turn up the heat and let's see. He's not looking to do that. No, temptation trials come to strengthen us, but they will never get to a point where God says, I'm gonna break you in this, or, or I'm gonna allow this to defeat you or hurt you. He always allows a way out. There's always room now for us to go and move in God's direction to be freed from these things. God is preserving, protecting, and caring for us. But then we see in verse 10, man, Peter's not taking the, the way out, all right? Peter, verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now, Peter here, you gotta love a guy like Peter. Um, I think he's thinking he's doing the right thing. We gotta, we gotta stand up for Jesus. Remember, Peter's the guy that says, listen, if all of these will deny you and, 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 and betray you, I will never, I will never leave you. I'm here with you thick and thin, Jesus. That's what Peter's saying, right? And I think Peter's going, I'm, I'm gonna show him I'm a man of my word here. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna be willing to go down in flames here for Jesus. I'm gonna take my sword and I'm gonna stop this. I'm gonna prevent it. But you see, what Peter is representing here for us is a man of his will, his desire. He's not looking to carry out the, the will of the Father. He doesn't, he's not yet fully understanding the will of the Father because there's still too much Peter in him, 
right? You see, Peter's a man that should have been praying in the garden with Jesus, but he's sleeping. So here's Peter looking to kind of gratify the flesh a little bit too much. And when these moments come, now he's acting out in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Peter thinking, I'm gonna stand up for the Lord was actually standing in opposition to the will of the Lord. Because this is why, Peter, why, why Jesus came, was to give his life a ransom for many, to lay his life down. This was the moment that Jesus was in full control and was willingly and submissively giving his life over. And Peter's trying to prevent it, trying to prevent the very reason that Jesus came. See, like Peter, if we're spending too much time gratifying the flesh, then we are the spirit, we too are gonna be missing the mark. I think Peter here was missing the mark in a number of ways. I think Peter was wanting to take this guy's head off, right? I think Peter knew his way around his sword, but perhaps he's just waking up and he's got sleepy dust in his eyes. He's a little bit blurried vision right now as I know I can be in the morning as well. And he's probably trying to take this guy's head off and he takes a year off only. But he's missing the mark because he's taking action. He's taking matters in his own hands rather than saying, Lord, what's your will here? What's your desire in this situation? He's not being led of the Lord or being led of the Spirit. He's being led by his own desire and impulses. And the more that we're gratifying the flesh rather than the spirit, the more that we're gonna be led by our own impulses and sadly making matters worse when we try to act out thinking we're doing the right thing when in actuality we're doing the wrong thing because we're not walking in God's will. Peter just made more of a mess of things here. But I love what we see in Luke's gospel. Luke, Luke 22, verse 51, records for us that Jesus came and he stooped down and he picked up this guy's ear. Picked it up and he put it back on him. He healed him. This is like the last miracle that Jesus did to the world, for the world, before going to the cross. The last miracle that Jesus performs is being performed for the very one that was coming to take Jesus and do away with him. And he does a work of compassion for him. That's amazing. I mean, if I were Jesus, I would have been very tempted to say like, dude, you deal with your own ear, all right? Go get some tape, tape it on, do whatever you have to do, but I'm not touching that thing, especially for you. You're, you're against me. Like that would be a natural reaction, I think, for a lot of us. And yet Jesus, out of love and compassion, even to his enemies, he stoops down, he heals this man. That's amazing. That's the love of Jesus. Now, I just a little side note, I think this is so fun that we see in John's gospel because, you know, um, the gospels all record this scene about the garden and, the, and, and some of the events that go down, uh, different details, of course, but, but no other gospel mentions that it's Peter that's the one that cuts off this guy's ear. Only John does that. And I think it's because, you know, John had a little bit of a rivalry with Peter, a little bit of fun, a little bit of, like, you know, brothers who like to kind of, you know, just chat each other. Because John, you remember that after the resurrection, when they're told the good news that Jesus risen again, it says that Peter and the other disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, ran to the tomb. And then John records, and the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. It's like, I'm just gonna let all the world know for all of history that I'm a faster runner than Peter, all right? Peter's got a little bit too much fish in the belly or something. He's slow. I got there first. So John, I think, just loved to have a little bit of fun. I just think that's so cool just to see sometimes the human element that comes in, not changing the word of God, not corrupt, but just to see like, these are real people. These are real people that God used and worked through. And John just loved to kind of give a little bit of a, you know, hey, Peter. Uh, Peter, many believe that, that um, Peter was influential in Mark's gospel, that he was the one kind of dictating a lot of the things. And, and so certainly there's no mention about Peter in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane and the things that he did. But, but John's like, Peter, I think it's, it's very vital to the story just to let people know it was you and not me. All right? So I think that's just so fun. So... Here we are. And then, you know, what does Jesus say there to Peter? He says in, in verse 11, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And so we look at that, and, and this is what Jesus prayed, right? He prayed in the garden. Take this cup from me. But we ask, what is the cup? What are you talking about? What is this cup? Well, the cup in, in Old Testament um, in the Old Testament was 
uh, a term used to really speak figuratively of the wrath and the judgment of God. The wrath and judgment of God that he was gonna pour out upon a, a world that had rejected him. Pouring it out upon the sin of the world. This cup spoke of this wrath and judgment that God would, would execute for sin. And Jesus now says to Peter that, shall I not drink the cup? In other words, shall I not be the one that will partake of this wrath and judgment of God? Oh, Peter, you might want to stop it. You can try to stop all the enemies. You can try to free me. But this cup has to be dealt with. Uh, you want to prevent me from drinking it and you partake of it? You won't survive. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and judgment down on the cross. That's why he was separated from the Father. That's why he prayed if there be any other way. He, he took the sin of the world upon himself and God allowed his son to be judged so that you and I could be spared from that judgment, so that you and I could be set free, so that you and I could be forgiven and have life and life eternal through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the cup that Jesus spoke of. He took the cup, but he gave you and I a different cup. He gave us the cup of his blood of the new covenant. That new covenant that says, I'll remember their sin no more. I'm gonna forgive them. It's the new covenant of the grace of God by which he's redeemed us, forgiven us, cleansed us, and he remembers our sin no more. You will need to take of one of those two cups. You will either take of the cup of the judgment of God for your sin in which you perish, or you partake of the cup that Jesus gives you freely of the blood of his new covenant by which you say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me and to cleanse me. I can't do it myself. It's through your work on the cross. That's why we partake of communion here at church to remember what Jesus did to set us free, to give us life and forgiveness of sin. You're gonna have to take of one of those cups. You need to choose. Which cup will you partake of? I hope it's the cup of his blood of the new covenant by which we have life and not death. Verse 12 goes on to say, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Now as Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So as the troops arrested Jesus, they bound him. But understand, it, it, it wasn't the ropes that they used or whatever they did to bind Jesus. It was his love for you and me that, that bound him. He was bound by his love for you and for me to go to the cross. It wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. It was his love for you and me. So they may have bound him, but Jesus is going, this is just a formality. Guys, this isn't doing anything. I'm going willingly. No, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And he's doing this freely and willingly. Now they took him to Annas first. Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 A.D., and he fell out of favor with the Roman government, so he was deposed. Then Annas had four sons that succeeded him, and also Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. Caiaphas held this office at the time of Christ. He was acting high priest from 18 to 36 or 37 AD. But because Annas was so well-loved, and because the Jews viewed this position as high priest as a lifetime position, Annas was still the guy that they looked to as their high priest, so Jesus was taken to him first. But it's at this moment that John wants to remind his readers of an earlier prophecy that was given by Caiaphas, of all people. Just to let you know again that God can speak and use all means that he wants, because Caiaphas is not a follower of Christ. He's not a, a, you know, a follower of God to that degree even, but yet God allowed Caiaphas to speak an incredible prophecy in John 11, verse 15, when he said, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Listen, right there is the gospel. Because Caiaphas is thinking only for himself. He says, listen, guys, it's better that we take out this man, Jesus, or else our whole nation might be doomed. Romans might come against us and just take us all out. It's better that we let this man die. 
But yet Caiaphas was prophesying of the very gospel message that Jesus would come and give his life a ransom for all, that we might be spared and saved and have life in him through his sacrifice. That's amazing. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So Peter and another disciple now comes in. They're following the crowd. They're keeping an eye on what's going on, seeing what's happening with Jesus. Now, the other disciple is not known to us. It's widely agreed that it's John the author of the gospel of John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It very well could be. That's widely agreed that it's John, but others have suggested it could have been Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus the Pharisee that comes to see Jesus at night in John chapter three. Others say maybe it's Joseph of Arimathea who, who took Jesus' body from the cross and gave him his proper burial in the tomb there. So it could have been any of those. We're not sure exactly, but many believe it was John. And so they come in, they're keeping an eye on things. And it tells us in verse 17 that then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, Jesus had predicted that Peter was gonna deny him three times, right? You'd think Peter would be on high alert. Like the very forefront of his mind, he's thinking, okay, whatever you do, Peter, don't deny Christ because he called me out. He said I was gonna do it. I'm gonna prove him wrong. I'm not gonna let that happen. Peter, whatever you do, don't deny Christ. You're one of him. No, I'm not. Ah! Like, I mean, just Peter, shouldn't this have been fresh in your mind? Shouldn't he be on guard? Maybe Peter's looking at this thinking, ah, it's no big deal. Maybe he's kind of let his guard down thinking, it's just a servant girl. What's she gonna do? What, what pressure is she gonna put on me? Ah, I can maybe let my guard down. Nothing's, this isn't, this isn't something to get worried about. But yet, Oftentimes, it's not the, 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 the big kind of scary stuff that comes in and might lead us into sin. It's sometimes the very seemingly innocent things that we think are not a problem or an issue that causes us to fall into sin. How we need to be on guard. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, the Bible says. We need to be on guard at all times and from all things. Because here's Peter, one moment, ready to take a sword against this battalion and yet he cowers in fear in the face of a young girl and he denies Christ strike one should have been on guard now it says in verse 18 now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself so notice the progression here Peter started off following the crowd then he sat with them then he's becoming warm by the fire. See, when we follow the world, follow what the world is doing, when, well, when we follow the world, we, we can tend to get very comfortable then in the things of the world. Perhaps we get a little bit desensitized to the dangers that it might impose against us. Maybe we get a little bit warmed by it. And again, kind of let our guard down even more. But it's like that, that, that frog in the boiling pot of water you put it in the hot water, it doesn't realize that that's getting hotter and hotter and boiling till, the, till he's dead. Sometimes the world works that way where we start to get very worn by the world and we fail to see the danger that it is creating in our lives to the point where we get burned by the world. And Peter's in that position here right now. Verse 19, go back to the questioning that's going on now by the high priest to Jesus. It says, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So understand this trial right now is taking place very illegally. Uh, a trial wasn't to be conducted at night or through the night. They were to wait till the morning time, but they're doing this at night. And they're doing so without witnesses. Of course, any trial would have had to have had witnesses. There's no witnesses. They're calling Jesus out on stuff that he said. And Jesus says, listen, I've not hid anything from you. I've spoken very openly. I've not been trying to create some, some faction of, uh, or, or false doctrine and try to do things in secret. I've been very open. I've got nothing to hide. In fact, why don't you talk to those people that have heard me? Because they'll be a witness. And in fact, 
by the way, guys, where are the witnesses? Because we should have some witnesses here. So why don't you talk to them? Don't, don't ask me. Ask those that'll, that'll vouch for me or back what you're saying. But you're not going to find anybody because I've not hid anything. Everything's been out in the open. So he's asking for witnesses. And then in verse 22, what happens oftentimes is when people feel backed in the corner, when people feel like they're in the wrong, but they don't want to admit it, and they got nothing else to really say, they resort to abuse or violence. Because look at what we see, verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's really quite interesting to see that, you know, sometimes when you're dialoguing with people and you're presenting truth to them, and, and they just, they don't want to receive it, but they got nothing to say in return. They oftentimes resort to just kind of getting angry, getting upset, maybe name calling at times. Well, this man takes it one step further. He just hauls off and hits Jesus. He's like, what do you think you're doing? Because he knows they're in the wrong. They've got an innocent man who's done nothing but good. And if only this officer would have understood the very one he was hitting, he's hitting the very one that has created him that's formed that hand for him. And he uses that and he hits this man, Jesus. If only this officer knew what he was doing. Striking this one that could have taken his very life from him. But Jesus stands here and he receives it. And he takes this abuse and he's gonna take a lot more. And he's gonna do so again because of this great love he has for the world where he's willing to lay his life down. And all through the the tragedy that we see unfold of Jesus being taken to the cross and beatings he suffers, it's, it's only gonna show and reveal to us just the, the harm of sin. Paint that parallel in your minds because sin is brutal. Sin destroys. And we see what is happening now with Jesus as sin is gonna be placed on him that he's gonna face and take an incredible amount of abuse because that's what sin does. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Well, he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, John just wants to get it in there one more time, right? He said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. Could you imagine being in Peter's shoes right now? Now we see a couple of interesting things uh, unfolding here that we see in the other gospels. It tells us in Mark 14, verse 71, that, that Peter, at this time, he began to swear and curse and said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I mean, Peter's not just kind of trying to sheepishly, dis- oh, I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He's not sheepishly, kind of, he's like, he starts to, to swear and curse and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I do not know this man. I'll just be quiet. Like he starts getting riled up. I mean, Peter didn't just deny the Lord in a, in a soft manner. I mean, he was, he was angry here. It's as though Peter began to believe the lies that he was himself perpetuating. It's easy when we start that process of being dishonest and deceptive to deceive others that we slowly I think, begin to buy into that same deception and deceive ourselves. And think, oh, no, really, it's, it's really not that bad. Oh, we can kind of justify that. Oh, we can, no, that's okay. And we can then begin to deceive ourselves when we begin to enter that slippery slope of dishonesty and deception. Peter's walking right into that. Now, listen, before we rail on Peter, I think, I think we need to take a look inward here for a little bit. And this is where things can sometimes get a little bit a little bit hurtful where you're going, is this probably a good time for a coffee or bathroom break? Let me get out of here while I can. Don't, nobody, if you go now, now everybody's gonna know you're being convicted, so you, now you gotta stay. But I think it's important to kind of take a little bit of, uh, of an inward look here because I think we need to ask ourselves, man, have we played the part of denying Jesus? I'm not talking about rejecting him to the point of saying, oh, I don't believe that he exists. I'm talking about just in our daily life where maybe we haven't stood up for Jesus. Maybe we haven't taken that place of saying, no, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus. And let me share with you what he's done in my life. 
in opportunities where maybe others are railing against Jesus? Have we denied him just sometimes by our silence? Because we can look at Peter and go, oh, Peter, how could you have done that? And I go, I wonder how many times I've done that myself. Now, I like a guy like Peter. I'm glad that he's in the Bible because it's very relatable. Here's Peter. He's a little bit compulsive, a little bit overconfident in himself, a little bit cocky. Reminds me a lot of, of you. I mean, reminds, reminds me a lot of, of me. That's what I'm trying to say. Sorry about that. That's a little bit of a, maybe a Freudian slip there. But here's Peter. He's a regular guy and he blew it big time. But guess what? Jesus knew he would. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. Jesus is not shocked by this. I don't even think that Jesus is like angry about this. He knew this was gonna happen. And when you and I blow it, Jesus isn't surprised by that. He's not up in heaven rolling his eyes saying, Father, oh my goodness, this is not the way it's supposed to go down. I can't believe these guys. Can you believe? He's not, up, he's not freaked out or surprised by that. He's not looking for your replacement the minute that you mess up. He knows our frailties and our proneness to messing up or screwing up. It tells us in Luke twenty two sixty one that as soon as Peter denied Jesus the third time, the rooster crows, it says that Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. Could you imagine what that look was like? Can you imagine how Peter's heart must have just sunk? But what do you think that look of Jesus was like to Peter? Do you think it was like that look he gave the pastor when he says we're wrapping up, but you know he's gonna go another 20 minutes? You're just like, I don't, I don't know if it was a look like that. I think, I think Jesus gave a look. And by the way, we're going to wrap up very shortly here. Um, I think Jesus looked at Peter with compassion and love. Because this didn't surprise Jesus. In fact, Jesus had already told Peter that this is exactly what's going to happen. It comes with understanding. It says in Luke 22, Verse 31 to 32, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Do you catch what Jesus says there? He knows Peter's gonna have a moment where he's gonna turn from Jesus. Oh, Peter, I know Satan's after you, but I prayed for you. And when you have returned, why does Peter need to return? Because he's gonna walk away. He's going to deny Jesus. Jesus knows it. He's not surprised by this. And you see, Jesus, I believe, looks to us with compassion when we mess up, when we fail, and all he's saying is, hey, return to me. Come back to me. Don't, don't linger out there too, too long and too far. Don't feel like you need to run away. Run to me in Repentance. See, the contrast between Judas and Peter, two of the disciples that denied Jesus, well, Judas felt guilt and he returned the money. Peter felt guilt, but he returned to Jesus. Judas never did. Judas went out and hung himself. I believe Judas had the opportunity to repent and return, but he chose not to. Peter, however, would come and he would repent and return to Jesus where Jesus would restore him. See, I believe it's in this time that as difficult as this was, this was a time that God would use now in Peter and for Peter to empty himself of Peter, to, to get rid of that self-confidence, to get rid of that pride and cause Peter to say, Lord, man, I'm weak. And I'm nothing without you. I need you, God. In fact, Peter in his epistles would, would talk about that. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter understood that I need to walk in humility because there's nothing in me that I can rely on. I need the Lord. And God worked through that. And so much so that now in just a, a few short weeks, the day of Pentecost, it's Peter that stands up and he gives this wonderful sermon where many were turned to faith in Jesus and many gave their lives to the Lord. God used Peter. God didn't shelf Peter. 
didn't say, yeah, it's going to be a little while till I can really trust you again. No. It's very soon that God used this, emptied Peter, but filled him with the Spirit, allowed him to be a man that was restored and used. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close our, our service here, just a time of response to the Lord. But there's some great lessons for us to learn in this chapter here. Seeing Jesus coming and being pressed in his spirit, emptying himself, surrendering to the will of the Father. Peter now, realizing his need to empty himself. Now, I don't, I don't want this lesson of Peter to be now a license for us to go, oh, great, so I can do what I want and everything will be fine if I just return to the Lord. It's not a license to sin. What I'm saying through this is that we need to, first of all, understand our weaknesses. That though you might think you're strong, and we're only strong in and through Jesus, don't trust in your own strength. In fact, Paul would say, when I'm weak, then he is strong. Thirdly, when you fail, know that God has compassion on you. Return to him. Return to him in repentance and be renewed and restored. Listen, we've been talking a lot about just our witness in the world. And, and especially in John 17, that was a great prayer that Jesus prayed about us being that, that witness. Our role in the world, as we saw last week, is to shake and shine, right? Salt and light. Shake and shine, church. That's what we're to be doing. And yet, we need to ask ourselves, Lord... Am I, am I denying you in any way, whether it be in my work, in my school? Have I taken that place where I've just kind of laid low and not taken a stand for you? Lord, I don't want to be that person. I want to be one that will stand strong for you, that will not deny you, but would rather proclaim you, live my life to the glory of God. And that happens as we empty ourselves of ourselves, lay our will down, to the will of the Father and say, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Shine in me, be glorified through me, God. Let me not deny you, but let me live loudly for you in this world. That's what we need to be praying for. And so let's stand together and I'm gonna have our prayer teams come and make themselves available in the front. And, and if you're here today and that's just speaking to you and you just would like prayer, just come and receive prayer. And maybe it's for something entirely different. Maybe just a trial, a crisis in your life that you're needing just the Lord to strengthen you and then just come and receive prayer for that. All right? Lord, we thank you for our time together, for your word that speaks to us so practically and reminds us of, of these truths that we want to take in, Lord. And I pray that you would just encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, to live these lives for you. Lord, help us not to be those that will, will sheepishly shrink away but rather, instead, we would stand up strong for you, not denying you, but proclaiming you, Jesus, in every way. So help us in that now. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Jesus. It gives us a reason, Lord, to live these lives, surrender to you, because you've done it all for us. So pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.